0: It's like the old, it's like a milkman. It's like the old milkman. Oh Hey man, your your kid looks like the booze man. Right, that's a joke. (laughs) Remember, you're saying they're they're insinuating your wife had relations with the milkman. Man, Man, you guys don't know old jokes at all.
1: No, please tell us more, Grandpa.
0: Cool. What are we going to are we going to talk about like grain or something today?
1: We're going to talk about all the things, but first we should introduce our guest. Today we have Joseph. Joseph, introduce yourself.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm Joseph Kalcorf. I'm the craft distilling manager for North America. Well, for not North America, I should say the US to be a little bit more uh, more accurate.
1: No, take it um,
2: off. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I did for a while, and I had to give up a handful of states uh, to a to a colleague to cover off the Northeast. But I still have about forty four out of the fifty states, which is still an awful lot. But uh,
3: so the, so you're saying the Northeast gives you the most trouble?
2: Ah, no, no. To be honest, there was just somebody that lived closer, and it just worked better. Grant, I'm in the located in the middle of nowhere. I'm just outside of uh, Omaha, uh, but that's more of a lineage when I used to be in the uh, the fuel alcohol industry. So. That's why I'm here and didn't want to uproot my kids because otherwise where I live makes absolutely no sense. I should be (laughs) (laughs) Chicago, Seattle, Denver, you know, somewhere a little bit bigger of a hub, but it is what it is.
1: And uh, where do you work, Joseph?
2: Where? So I work out of a home office. Otherwise, I travel about half the year, you know, visiting craft distilleries, conferences, uh, schools, that sort of thing. So um, quite I live in a very tiny village of about 300 people, uh, two hours straight west of Omaha, the home of the College World Series, which I guess just wrapped up last night.
3: I think Brian wanted the exact address so we could.
1: Yeah. I did. We're going to start sending you some weird stuff. No.
2: Yeah, I'm trying to get the uh, the GPS coordinates for us. No, so. see,
1: actually, I change my address every couple months for completely legal reasons.
0: <laughs> what is the longitude there?
2: Uh, it, it would be the same as Chicago, believe it or not it's like on a deadline
1: Fair enough. we're learning so much esoteric knowledge already i love it <laughs> all right well joseph you're joining us today we're gonna go ahead and jump in first this is the still talking podcast our reverent industry podcast with colton zeno and myself brian let's jump into the news there's some interesting news uh with the uh supreme court and and uh the good state of tennessee colton uh scota strikes down tennessee resident uh, residency requirement for alcohol retailers you guys look into this already Yeah, I'm getting a total wine, getting all the total wines, man. That's awesome. Yeah. So this is one the industry has been keeping an eye on for a while because essentially, uh, Tennessee had a requirement that you had to be a resident for two years before you could even apply for a liquor license or liquor retail license. And then uh, the weird thing is, even after you got that, you could have it for a year. But then the renewal notice was, I believe you had to be a resident for something like 10 years to renew. Yeah. So you could get it for one year and then you would lose it for the next seven years until you could actually renew again. So it was a really weird, it was obviously meant to favor, uh, Tennessee residents and Tennessee businesses, but it was a seven, two decision, uh, by the court to basically say, and it was, uh, uh, let's see. Yeah. Ruled the Tennessee wine spirits retailers. Uh, it's the Tennessee wine retailers association versus Russell F. Tom, uh, Thomas. And they basically said, yeah, you can't do that.
3: Yeah. I think it was, uh, You know, the law was probably written uh, to help small businesses and keep out the big box stores. Right. Uh, But it seems like what it ended up doing was really putting the rest of the country's craft distillers at a disadvantage. And really, it's the biggest deal because it's going to be it's going to help for direct to consumer shipments all over the place. It basically says federal law trumps state law on alcohol regs. Yep, because of the Twenty First Amendment.
1: Yep, absolutely. So that's a pretty big deal. That's my caveman understanding. Y- yeah, and we may have some of the details wrong on that, but I'm I'm with you on that. It's another step towards possible uh, direct to consumer. Obviously, there's quite a few steps that need to come through to that. Um, but the next piece of news actually ties into that too. Uh, good old Amazon is testing the waters. It looks like they are going to open one of their first uh, alcohol shipment plants in, I believe, it's San Francisco
0: what is an alcohol shipment <laughs> plan?
1: I mean, I know what it sounds it's like. What our distilleries what it are. Yes. Essentially. <laughs> that's exactly what it is.
3: So Amazon's opening a distillery.
1: <laughs> Not quite. You uh, heard it here first people. <laughs> yes. All the news made up by artisans or uh, us, whoever we are. I'm already losing who we are. So yeah, it's Amazon aims to launch a booze delivery service in San Francisco. So that's that's essentially their first step, I believe, towards potentially trying to do direct-to-consumer shipments. Obviously, they're staying within legal bounds by staying within the state, which is smart. But, I mean, there's a lot of talk and rumors that they eventually would like to expand that out because they want to own and do everything. And that would be pretty amazing for craft producers.
3: Well, I think that's what the idea behind this Supreme Court decision is, is that if, at least the way some people are interpreting it, is that if a state already allows direct to consumer shipments, that you're not allowed to treat people from other US citizens or other people living in the US in other states differently. So, in theory, you should be allowed to direct ship to any state that allows it now. Yeah is how I'm hearing it interpreted.
1: Yep. So essentially what Amazon did is they applied for a liquor license. Uh, the license will permit the company to deliver alcohol to customers in San Francisco, uh, consequently strengthening its e-commerce capabilities
2: in the city. So again, that's... So I, I guess they're kind of trying to take on Drizzly a little bit head on there. Yes.
1: Now. Yes, that's exactly it. Well, and there's a couple others, isn't there? There's Drizzly. What's the other one? Is there a Casker? There's a few of those that have kind of been dipping their toes in that. And this would be a direct competition with them, I imagine.
2: And there's one in uh, I dealt with in Illinois that actually strictly deals with uh, craft distillers, uh, Big Fish.
1: I'm not familiar with them.
2: Um, I think they deal with like uh, 150 craft distillers. And I guess they have like 750 different bottles um, that they pull from anywhere from Hawaii to New York to all over the place. And they'll actually ship you know, within the state. Um, it actually came by car courier, which was really interesting. So I'm not sure if they have. All independent drivers, or if I was just a special case that complained a lot, or, or what the deal was, but uh, it was pretty cool. I was strictly for craft guys, so um, that's awesome. How
0: do you how do you get that job? You're like, well, I'm done doing Uber and Lyft. I'm just going to drive around
2: <laughs> booze to people's
0: house.
3: Yeah,
2: just delivering booze. Yeah, and I don't know what that uh, the risk on that would be. You know, cause it's if you get pulled over and you got you know, ten different cases of booze in your car. Well, I'm
3: assuming none of them
2: are open, but.
3: Well then, you're doing it wrong. Your Colin. driver is testing for poisonous bottles.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it, it's like the old. It's like a milkman. It's like the old milkman. Oh yeah. Like hey man, your your kid looks like the booze man. Right, that's a joke. <laughs> Remember, what you're saying they're they're insinuating your wife had relations with the milkman. Man, you guys don't know old
2: jokes at all.
1: No, please tell us more, Grandpa. <laughs>
2: Sorry, I was just going to say it'd be interesting to see if, uh, you know, if Amazon is going to utilize, you know, their drone delivery. Cause imagine getting, you know, bottles of whiskey delivered yes. by a drone. So I
3: remember, I remember a few years ago reading about there was a, there's like a, um, a, a shop in, I was either Minnesota or maybe Alaska, but basically they were drone delivering beer to uh, people ice fishing. <laughs> and they got in a lot of trouble because there was no way to ID, which I assume is still going to be the problem.
0: But what about facial recognition now? It's getting better. Yeah, yeah.
3: They're just gonna—they're just gonna attach an iPhone to the front
1: of the drone, right?
0: Yeah, because the, <laughs> the iPhone's the only thing with yeah, facial exactly. recognition. Cool. I, I kind of like this uh,
1: dystopian future, though. Instead of like drones attacking citizens, they're just gonna be dropping booze off and getting everyone trashed, so everyone's chill. I love this. This is the future I want.
0: That's how the robots are going to kill us.
1: Uh, So, yeah, Joseph, that's actually really great. I just noticed there is a press release here on June 25th. Uh, Big Fish, an online marketplace for craft spirits today, announces that it has launched an online platform that provides Illinois customers unprecedented access to carefully curated collection from more than 150 independent distillers from around the world. Uh, Claiming Big Fish is the first and only company to successfully navigate the three-tier system of alcohol distribution between producers, distributors, and retailers. Uh, basically gives them the ability to partner direct, directly with independent distilleries and make their products available to consumer consumers in Illinois through their online platform. That is a wild claim. That's, it is a wild claim. Uh, that's why <laughs> I, I said it was a claim. They may be accurate, but they are claiming it. And I'm not sure if that's accurate.
0: It fits in with our podcast. Yeah. speculation. Right, well, it has
1: been the year claims. of rum for like 18 years. So good news and information. I feel like that was a lot of actually really valid, interesting news, which is not what we're used to.
0: I think it was only two bits of news. They were both very good. But I think like the number. Uh, was all right, only I've got two. some good Ooh, news. Though. Give us
3: some good news. I was uh, I was playing the Spider-Man game on PlayStation the other day. Uh,
0: excellent. I've been uh, playing that too. It's great.
3: It turns out there's a level where you fight in the distillery. And it's in the middle of Hell's Kitchen and it is the most badass distillery I have ever seen. Is it an accurate distillery? <laughs> it seems there's some accurate things, and then each still is releasing quite a bit of vapor <laughs> to indicate that it is it is distilling. But it made me very nervous. And then, as
1: Spider-Man can, I
3: jumped on top of the still and looked down, and it was just an open column. There was no top. On well, it.
1: obviously, I, I imagine so. as the safety committee chair for ACSA, that that did make you very <laughs> nervous. And are you, are you writing a strongly worded letter to uh, the developers of Spider-Man? Yes. <laughs> yeah.
0: Wait, how did I not get to this point yet?
1: It's it's like way
0: far. Okay.
3: Maybe get it's, good.
1: I think it's one of the like add-on things. Be, but it's pretty awesome. Better at video games, you know.
0: Thank you, Brian.
1: <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> that seemed like the worst thing I could have said at that time for a nerd. So, Joseph, aren't you excited that you're on our video game slash distilling industry podcast? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Sure. No, it's it's normal conversation. I, the unscripted stuff is always the best. I don't care what topic or whatever you're talking about. The, the more structured it is, it seems like the more boring. I don't know it is, why so. you think that was all unscripted.
1: <laughs> we <laughs> spend hours <laughs> writing out this material. <laughs> Jesus Christ!
2: <laughs> I was actually reading that directly from the script, so I, I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah. No improv. No improv. All right. So, Joseph, you just got back from vacation. Uh, You're at Lalamond, You have lots of awesome science knowledge and experience. You were also just overseas for some work too. Do you want to talk anything about that? Or we'd love to just know a little bit more about uh, your day and your expertise.
2: Sure. So yeah, I was just overseas. Nothing, you know, directly related. Well, I guess it is and it isn't. Uh, you know, we since we're a global company, we of course have yeast, uh, you know, yeast plants, you know, all over the world. So I was fortunate enough to take part in a uh, a bit of a uh, kind of an audit, kind of an overview of just following, you know, yeast production, um, you know, at a site uh, just uh, east of uh, London, England. Um, so it was interesting to see. And it was kind of fun, but it also gave me kind of a new newfound respect for just how clean you have to be, you know, when you're growing up yeast. I mean, I, you know, you kind of know it and you think about it, you know, when you're dealing in your distillery or brewery, you know, if you have that experience on a day to day basis, but uh, it was fun. So one of the things that I did there that I do sometimes often, you know, in craft distilling is, I don't know, are you guys familiar with uh, a fluorescence microscope by chance? No. So it's, it looks, if you just had it sitting on the table, it looks like a standard white light microscope, uh, you know, using either a mirror or an LED bulb under it. Okay. Um, So instead, what this does is it uses, uh, well, this uses an LED, but you can for sure get them with uh, mercury vapor bulbs, which are a pain. They're hot and it's mercury and it's just, it's nasty to deal with. So. They have some LED ones. So instead of the light being brought from underneath and up into your eyes, this is actually putting light up above on top of it. So basically what you have is kind of like a Pink Floyd laser light show type thing going on because you need to be in a dark room. So it's a black background. So real easy to take a nap if you wanted. Um but it, you use fluorescent dyes, so the wavelength of light hits it, and you know the bacteria, the yeast, whatever you're looking at, and will fluoresce them, and actually mm. tell you instantly if they're live or dead. Um, so if you're looking for contamination, um, you know, want to know if you're if you're filthy, if you're clean, or if you've dosed bacteria, or if you just want kind of want to know what my yeast is doing. Um, it's a heck of a blue. lot better than the old. Yeah. If you've ever done the old methylene blue test, yeah. So it, it's a fun tool. It takes some pretty startling pictures, um, and because it's a it's a fluorescing dye, it actually exaggerates the size of the bacteria. It makes it super easy to find um, under the microscope. If you turned it off and went to just white light and looked, you might be able to find them because you kind of know where they're at. But it, it just makes it super easy to find. You know, it's a, it's just it's either red or green. I mean, it's it's stunning to see. So that's awesome. It's great for epilepsy.
1: Zeno, are you gonna get one now? Um,
2: I really. <laughs> well it doesn't flash so <laughs> i really like the idea that yeah. the
3: world's yeast scientists are just jamming out to pink fluid light shows whilst taking that yes i no would, I to
1: would
0: love to game. have one yeah. but, i mean yeah. no i'm not going to buy one
1: okay that's where we're that's where we're putting all our podcast yeah. money to. we're getting one of these it'd be cool <laughs> not the common material you need or uh, equipment you need for a podcast but yeah no, i'm still one. talking
0: podcast microscope done <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> ok, now you've got me nerded out. Like what other kind of equipment are you seeing in what kind of innovative equipment are you seeing come on the scene that's affecting one your job and your company's work as well as kind of the distilling market itself?
2: Well, it, it's one that so what we try to do is you know we know craft distillers. We know that you know there's there's really, huh there's there's two big segments either those the Habs that have you know incredibly deep pockets and we know who those people are you know they've got excellent marketing campaigns they've got all the you know the, the HPLCs the GCs you know they've got labs that are stocked to the gills and then we've got other guys that you know quite frankly can barely afford to you know submit a spirit for judging um, you know either you know ADI or ACSA so we try to have, you know, kind of like a, an essential toolkit, so to speak, you know, so besides the obvious of hydrometers and a pH meter and those sorts of things, um, one of the things that was there, but then kind of fell away because the the technology still isn't quite there is, uh, is if are you familiar with near infrared um, yes. spectroscopy? Mm-hmm. So there was a company uh, I won't name names cause I don't want to make them feel like failures, but they had a portable near infrared, quite literally, it was a size of a, uh, like a tic-tac container. Um, so super tiny, um, it would actually Bluetooth to your phone. Uh, and you had a scan button, the little case it came in was at zero point. Um, so you could scan and get, you know, real time readings of let's say starch or sugars, et cetera. So on grain, And that sort of thing, it seems to work fine. On fruits, it seems to work fine. And on standard spirits, um, you know, i.e., if you had a clear spirit um, and a standardized glassware that you always used, you could get a, a wavelength of, you know, that spirit. So you could know, okay, this is my typical vodka or this is my typical whiskey. Um, that sort of thing. But where we really wanted it and were really excited at the time was using it on fermentation. Because wouldn't it be great to know roughly, you know, within let's say a couple percent and not by percent, I mean like one or two percent alcohol, I mean like percent error of what your alcohol content is of any given time in in a fermenter or what the sugar content was or organic acids. Um instead of spending you know thirty, forty grand on an HPLC and somebody to run it, you know you could spend you know a couple grand you know on this little device that could do it in thirty seconds and it Bluetooth to your phone and you have the record of it. Um, unfortunately, it just the air bars were just way too big. Um, It was like throwing at a dartboard, but you had like the world's worst beer goggles going at the time. So you would hit dartboard or you could hit wall or you could hit somebody named dartboard. I mean, it's, you just didn't know where it was going to go. So
3: So do you think it's going to come back in five, ten years? Yeah, I would
2: say within the next, I would guess, if I had to guess, I would say within the next three to five years, because the technology, you know, we see it in the phones, you know, microprocessors are getting so tiny. Uh, Even the Raspberry Pi stuff, you know, that stuff's getting ridiculously tiny and and affordable. I could see somebody really tying in, you know, a system like that and making it robust. It it just really comes down to the optics. Got it you know, all sorts of these portable, you know, little things that you can have around that don't take up a footprint in a distillery, um, you know, that, or that we can carry or that a distiller can have that. Those are the things that really get us, you know, kind of geeked out and are kind of fun to play with.
0: Yes. So Joseph, you came from fuel ethanol, right? And, yep. you know, I came from, I think we actually met at a bigger distillery before I am where I am now. Do you see any value in, uh, uh, <laughs> I know some people will use you as a bank. You have a yeast bank, right? alone has yeast banking. Do you, do you see value in the craft market of people having their own house yeast?
2: Yeah. So, you know, a house yeast, I'm guessing you're meaning like a, you know, literally a proprietary yeast, yeah. like their own. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's good. Uh, it's good and bad. So it's good in the way that it, it's a tremendous thing for your story. Um, you know, like where you came from, you know, obviously it's a, it's a, it's a big part of, you know, that side of it. Um, excuse me, but for craft guys, it's tricky because, you know, unless you have a, you know, an on-staff microbiologist and somebody who's really keyed into, you know, really the growth and maintenance and is, is such a stickler for detail, sanitation and, uh, you know, and everything else to maintain a yeast strain yourself is a challenge. Um, so certainly you can, you know, you can contract it out, you know, have it made, um, you know, or have somebody else hold it for you and periodically get slants. At least that way it's, it's pure each time, but for sure, because there are some really, really unique yeast strains out there, uh, you know, coming from the fuel ethanol side, you know, you didn't care. I mean, you were, you were literally making vodka, uh, not very good vodka um, because it's, you know, you're going to burn it, but you know, you didn't care what the smell or taste like. So coming to the beverage side, that, that was a bit of a shock just to see, Oh my! What yeast can do? I mean, it's there's some staggering aromas, um, you know, of distillates that people have ran, you know, three different uh, yeast strains in the same system back to back to back, and the only difference between them is the yeast strain, um, and the proprietary ones are of no exception because that really makes you unique. And that's, to be honest, that's what craft distilling is about. You know, you want to be that unique guy. You don't want to be another clone.
3: I was going to say, is it is it financially? viable for a small guy who can barely afford to yeah and that's submit to to submit to competitions to be yeah and that's i mean what 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 are the costs like to
2: it's it's not cheap because you know if you think of a you know if you think of a a typical size you know yeast plant uh you know yeast plants are no different than a distillery and i mean you're not going to necessarily be looking at you know if you're running uh you know bourbon twenty four seven and then you know you've got a need or you've not necessarily a need but you've got a request to make a uh Uh, you know like say uh, 50 cases of single malt whiskey um, and you've got to sneak that in there somewhere Um, is that viable knowing that hey my bourbon is the big seller I'm making a lot of money off of it I don't know what the single malt's going to do to insert this in there and disrupt it Um, now if they came in and said they wanted half of your production to do it well that's a different story uh, if you have that commitment so the same thing would go for us Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at a, a, a batch of yeast, you know, can it be anywhere from 12 to, let's say, 20 metric tons uh, of yeast to be efficient? Um, you know, and that's kind of based off of, you know, the baking industry, large distilleries, et cetera, um, which is, you know, some reasons you look at, you know, brewing yeast is quite near and dear. Wine yeast is quite near and dear. Uh, distilling yeast isn't quite as bad, um, but it, it's based on volumes and efficiencies, right? So if you have somebody, i.e. a craft distiller, who's only going to take, let's say, 100 kilos of this proprietary yeast, you know, in a year, uh, those costs are going to be quite high just because the production costs going into it are going to be insanely high. Um, So that's why it can be a challenge. Um, however, there have been some people with some deep pockets, the right story, investors, etc., who have been able to pull it off. And of course the product, you know, product price point sure as a heck reflects that too.
0: Right. Do you think that people could, you know, set up like an SL Huber propagation system? Yep. And, and like so yeah. if they had a slant, you yeah. guys would bank it. So that's it for them. yeah,
2: it's done in brewing and and for sure that can be done. I mean, that's one way to go about it. That's kind of what would be kind of like an intermediary step. So they wouldn't have to necessarily worry about banking it. You know, they could pay, a, uh, let's say, a yearly maintenance fee or whatever to hold it essentially in a library and then get access to, you know, whatever, however many slants that they want, you know, a year. And then they're responsible for growing it up from there. So for sure you could. It's just it's a lot of detail going into it. Um,
0: yeah, and you have to have the skill set to do it, not just anyone. Yeah, exactly
2: right. Exactly right. And the ways to make sure you go back and check it to make sure that the slant, the strain you grew up is the slant you grew it from too, that you didn't get contaminated with something. Or drift.
1: Does it have to be yeast? Can Can I give you some random... Photos I got from Zeno several years back for safekeeping. Is, is it like a safety deposit box? Maybe some gold bullion? Well, I just want to know my, like, you know, what range do you go well, with?
0: We both have to turn the key at the same time. To yes. Yeah.
2: Well, it's actually to get, it doesn't actually have to be yeast. Um, there was actually a press release uh, and a big thing done. Um, if you're familiar with the Glenmorangie whiskey, uh, you know, over in uh, Scotland, we partnered with them about well, three years ago now uh, they actually came to us quite literally with a handful of barley um, they said look our water is comes from a well that's on the distillery site uh, the people live you know around here uh, we have wood that was sourced from around the distillery site and property we want a yeast strain that's also from around the distillery site and property so we were able to isolate a, a a few strains from that, uh, barley, um, and then produce, um, you know, a certain amount of, of tonnage for them of this, uh, this, this unique yeast strain, um, and off they go.
3: Is it a, is it a strain yep. or is it a
1: blend?
2: No, it's a, it's an actual, it's a yeah, yeast strain. Yeah, it was a strain. yeast strain that was, I so they were, I think, usually you get like a handful of pure culture strains and it's, it can be a crapshoot. Usually, you know, you try to get the ones that look the best growing and the most viable and then kind of screen them from there. Yeah.
1: Do you have people in the field that actually harvest different strains and go through research projects? Is that at all what your company does as well?
2: We do some of that. We don't have people like doing that full time. No. Um, but we have you know, we have been asked before, you know, to go into like, let's say a, a derelict, you know, bourbon distillery or whiskey distillery or whatever and say, well, could you, if the opportunity arose, you know, come in and swab, uh, you know, different walls or like if it's a really old fermenter, you know, if you had some, you know, wood fermenters that haven't been used in a while. And again, it goes back, it ties back to that story of, you know, of where you're getting to. Right. Um, is quite helpful. I mean, that's if you think about it, you know, that's that's a major piece of the wine industry is a lot of those wine strains were isolated off of, you know, that particular vineyard um, and those particular grapes, which is why they work so well.
0: So so we're talking about unique. That's pretty unique. That's pretty neat. Have you gotten any like a bee stomach? yeast or you know <laughs> like rat tail yeast from the tropic islands because no, i've seen both those there, things. there
2: have been some weird ones i think there was a, uh, I think it was maybe twitter i don't think it was vice it was somewhere social media based but this uh this entrepreneurial gentleman i guess kind of shook his beard over a uh, a starter culture and basically brewed a beer based upon the, the stuff that came out of his beard, which to me is, sounds absolutely disgusting.
3: <laughs> <laughs> the people in Oregon love
1: Yep. Stuff. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> but there's been, you know, there's been yogurts, you know, that are done that way. I mean, we know spontaneous fermentation, you know, can happen um, with just about anything. Uh, you know, and there's even been distilleries that have what we call, quite literally going back to what you mentioned, a house strain. Um, not so much a proprietary strain that they choose, but let's say they start off with a common distilling strain or a whiskey strain, whatever, and they pitch it. Uh, and within, you know, three days or so of them, you know, using the yeast and running, you know, this process, suddenly their yeast is no longer in the system. It, it, Whatever, doesn't matter what they pitch, the system gets taken over by this quote-unquote house strain that is just, for whatever reason, has taken residence in their distillery. <clears throat> you know, whether it's, you know, by spores or it's just in their equipment, particularly if they have wood, you know, wood fermenters or, you know, just an old wood building, etc. Those things can happen as well. Um, sometimes it can be good. I mean, sometimes it can make fantastic spirits, and sometimes it can be a freaking nightmare, where you're just producing, you know, really nasty stuff, lots of organic acids, and right. and not <laughs> a lot of alcohol.
0: Yeah, it doesn't sound
2: like a lot of control. No, exactly. Like that. <clears throat> That's yeah. exactly right. That's a, So, do
0: you think that, uh, you know, when they do have a house yeast like that, or, or they're doing that, and they're building it up, or they're bubbing it? Is it good to go back to their oldest retain every once in a while to minimize that genetic drift?
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I know where you're coming from, and for sure, I mean, if if they have that type of system, um, yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, but again, it goes back to making sure that whatever that old that old catalog was, you know, that old uh, you know, culture slant, et cetera is well-maintained, um, et cetera, because it's, it's one that we've, <clears throat> you know, that we've ran across, uh, you know, at various sites that, you know, you get a retention sample, et cetera. And it's like, Ooh, you know, they're, they're really not kissing cousins, but wow, man, their sensory is almost identical. So it's, it's kind of crazy. It's like, it just gets adapted into their system. Um, you know, that way.
3: Do you ever work with, uh, obviously you probably can't say names or no one would admit it, but has anyone let too much genetic drift happen yep. and then they go back to their old one and they're like "No, what no we like the other one better yeah well it's, it's drifted somewhere uh, way better than it
2: was not so much where it's it's came back that they like the you know like the quote unquote the new version better um, but actually have gone back to a old strain that was ran through uh, kind of blindly um, and passed a, um, a sensory panel um, unbidden you know it, it wasn't even picked up you know, it matched the uh, the standard and actually matched the production with their standard strain as well, um, which kind of points at times that sometimes some places are more, uh, more of the sensory comes from their feedstock, their process and the distillation that it does their yeast strain, which sometimes is unfortunate, you know, as a yeast producer to hear that. But then you wonder, <laughs> well, what happens if we did put a an actual, you know, a, a standard off the shelf distilling strain and would it really do the same thing or not? Um, you know, that's, that, that's the one thing that, uh, you know, the, the verdict is still out on that sometimes we just don't know, you know, the fermentation vessels can be radically different. Distillation for sure can be different, you know, cuts are done differently, et cetera, et cetera. So there's just, there's so doggone many variables at times to, you know, to figure out sensory.
3: Yeah. Well, at least you know that people are always going to be using yeast, right? <laughs> distillers are experimenting with different sugars and starch sources, but you know that they're going to have to throw yeast in there
0: somewhere. Yeah. And I think I think that, you know, it's as the exponential growth of this craft side too, sooner or later when there's a competition, everyone's making an American single malt to differenti- differentiate themselves. They're going to want to do things with yeast. I mean, we're all interested in it too. Yeah. So I think that there is always space for it. And, you know, you, you don't build the story of you know, old granddad's yeast. You, you know, you have to build, you have to start before you have a story. Right. So someone's, you know, they're going to be doing those kind of
1: things. Yeah. Like, you have to be an old granddad. granddad. Debt, right? <laughs> you have to do it for 10 billion years. Yeah. Joseph, what kind of work is, you know, in the world of CRISPR now, what kind of work is going into genetic engineering to try and build a better yeast, so to speak?
2: Oh boy. Um, that's a that's a big 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 part of our uh, our fuel alcohol side currently at the moment. So I don't know if you guys are aware, but uh, a number of years ago we acquired a company called Mascoma, um, located in uh, Net- Lebanon, New Hampshire. You know, kind of this sleepy little town in a, a pretty cool little state, um, and all they do, as I mean, it, it's ran uh, you know not to derogatory by any means, but, you know, ran by gene jockeys. Um, and quite literally, it seems like 24-7, they're <laughs> making new yeast strains. Um, so the big market and the easy market on that, of course, is where you're not going to be consuming the product, and that's fuel alcohol. Right. So they've actually introduced, uh, you know, genes into a standard distilling strain that uh, actually expresses its own glucoamylase. Um, so it can actually displace you know, somewhere around about, about half of the glucoamylase that is required by the distillery. So if you think of somebody who's making, let's say, 50 or 100 million gallons of alcohol a year, uh, that's a lot of money cut off. Um, they've gone down the route of doing things such as yield boost, uh, you know, where you can cut out glycerol production or right. cut down drastically on the glycerol production and other things. Uh, I think we've, uh, you know, our brewing compatriots have kind of pushed the line a little bit with a sour VCA. Um, so, a, a biotech yeast. You know, nobody wants to use the term, uh, you know, GMO or genetically enhanced, etc It's, you know, biotech is the. Yeah, uh, the make it cyberpunk. Uh, yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, put a little steampunk action to it, maybe, too. That'd be kind of a cool yeast. Uh, <laughs> But no, it's seriously. I mean, it's you know we're looking at things like, well, could you do something to short circuit uh, maturation? You know, could you introduce a yeast that puts a lot of uh, you know vanillin precursors in, so you've got some of that vanilla, oaky type notes already in the yeast, so you don't have to do quite as much uh, you know maturation. Or can you add other, other uh, you know other sensory characteristics like uh, you know who wouldn't want a you know a banana flavored rum without any banana added to it? You know, it just comes off I the still that can... way.
3: I think if we could get that uh, infrared technology put into the yeast, <laughs> so it would tell your phone when the fermentation is done, that would be great. Yeah, little
2: white flags coming up. <laughs> God, the future's awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. We're done. <laughs> We're done. Get us out of here. The only <laughs> it's toxic. Yeah, the, the only, We're idiots. The, the only downside <laughs> yeah. to you know this biotech thing is who's going to use it first. Uh, you know, we know that there's nothing in the, the literature for the US or our Canadians to the north that say we can or cannot use a, a biotech yeast in our process because it's, it's a processing aid. So Steve Zeno. Uh, <laughs> Steve Zeno <laughs> Damn it Steve. <laughs> so the only trap you'd fall into is if you ship stuff to, you know, the European Union. Uh, but most, most distillers who are doing that, you know, the major guys, they have different formulations, if it's going to be export or not, but really it's going to be, who's going to accept it. But Hey, you know, we've got those, those, uh, bleeding impossible burgers out there now. Uh, so who knows people are consuming uh, GMO yeast as it is. So we'll see.
1: That's interesting.
2: So
0: that is, that is awesome. The ASBC was their conference was here. Uh, they just left. It just finished up yesterday, and about fifty of them came through my distillery yesterday. And one of these guys was telling me about a—I think he was, it was a Norwegian yeast strain that ferments at like a hundred F, and it com- finishes out in like uh, like a like twenty-four hours, and it's still low ester. I don't know. It was some unique yeast strain. He's like, you should try it for your vodka. <laughs> Right. I mean, he was probably trying to sell me something. and the, But, but you know, Colton old professor, Tom Schohammer, was there, too. And he he brought it up to me again later when we were drinking a beer. He's like, did you talk to that Norwegian? I'm like, Uh, No, I don't fully understand
2: what he was talking about. Uh, Yeah, and it's what he probably didn't tell you is, you know, what feedstock it was on. You know, was it just a, uh, you know, like a a beet sugar thing or whatever? Because, you know, some of those fermentations can be insanely quick as well. What alcohol percentage was he getting, Um, you know, et cetera. And, you know, 100 degrees Fahrenheit is, that's really freaking hot. Uh, I know. Yeah, Yeah,
0: (laughs) that's what I thought. I'm like, geez. Yeah. Yeah. How is it not all dying off pretty quick? Yeah, or
2: just being this uh, so much high alcohol, so Esther. much uh, the higher alcohol, the real solventy harsh notes. I mean, I think that would just be yeah. that would have such a sick burn to it. I,
0: I'm guessing that he did do it for on you know a grain substrate though, because I mean it was the American Society of Brewing, yes. Yeah. So he was with a bunch of brewers, but yeah, I don't. I'll look into it. This was a very loose story, Joseph. <laughs> oh, that's um, pretty cool, though. <laughs> yeah. I yeah, I was hoping you could fill in details of the story so, Zeno you know, just made very it. little of <laughs> very little clues. Uh, no, you know what, there's nothing more uh stressful than having you know the, the all these brewing chemists and beer chemists come into you your watch
3: your somewhere. yeast pitching I'm process. Like,
0: oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. I didn't I did not let them see that. Yeah. Um but I also am proudly, totally transparent, like, there's nothing in my process that's secretive. It's so nice that the people always ask, like, can we take pictures? And I'm like, you can ask me literally any question and take as many pictures as you want. I don't care. Go do the same thing. It's still going to be a little different.
1: And then he so. gets really weird looks when he starts unbuttoning his shirt and then it goes just. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: well, why do you think I'm
0: wearing a shirt? In <laughs> the first place?
2: touche. Touche. Just to just to jump back uh, on that Norwegian thing, just for future reading, uh, I actually just googled it real quick. It's actually Omega yeast. Um, it's actually Norwegian. I'm not going to butcher that, but it's a, yeah, it is a Norwegian one that you, you had referenced. Um, but they've got uh, their hot head yeast, which is kind of interesting, and and a few others. But it does exactly talk about just what you said, that up to 100 degrees with no change in uh, no change in sensory, which is quite interesting. So for future boning up of your knowledge. See, there you go. You filled it in my story. <laughs> a bit late.
3: Riveting as it yeah. was.
2: <laughs> yeah, riveting stories, you know. need a better stall tactic or transition in there somewhere.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. well, you know, if I wasn't on this podcast with the assholes, maybe it would have
1: been more interesting. Yeah, but you love us. So that says a lot more about you than us.
3: So I've got a, I've got a question about uh, climate change. Most yeast is all lab-based at this point, but like we talked about, you're still going out and finding new strains and, you know, culturing off whatever plant or in different areas. Are Are you seeing any changes or is anyone worried about, you know, we cultured this 50 years ago and then 50 years from now, if we're looking at a new one, it's going to be totally different even though it's the exact same acre in the world. Mm,
2: that, yeah, interesting. I would I would have to think that there would be some concern there, but I guess as long as the, you know, the strain was captured, you know, and is banked somewhere and and well, probably more often than not, banked in more than one place, um, you know, just for safety sake, you know, in case of uh, well, somebody screwed up and, and lost it or power outage or, you know, some type of a uh, environmental disaster war or whatever. Um, for sure. And I think that's kind of the interesting thing too, is, but not only that, you know, does that strain disappear in the wild, but also what new strains, you know, develop. Um, because we know that,
3: yeah, the Norwegian one got me thinking of it is maybe, yeah. maybe that's the future is these very hot fermenting.
2: Yeah, for sure. Cause yeast, uh, I mean, we Norwegian know that strains. yeast adapt well. Um, and you can kind of do that forced evolution of, and much like you would be doing in a, uh, you know, in a bourbon distillery, in the process is you're kind of doing a bit of forced evolution, you know, where you have the same strain and the same, you know, kind of in that same system over and over and over and over. You're kind of forcing it into those conditions. You'd have to think that the same thing would be happening in the wild, so it's possible. Um, that the, you know, this is legit that they did find a strain isolated somewhere that, uh, you know, who knows, maybe they found it in some subtropical region that it just loves to be, you know, hot and nasty. And that's just where it does things the best.
3: You know, those rainforests of
2: Norway. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so they have rainforests, they're just a bit different.
1: <laughs> I'm just amazed that someone was able to say hot and nasty and Zeno didn't immediately jump in. With something <laughs> You are tired, buddy. You know, I don't always, I don't always go Super for the low hanging fruit. Okay, uh.
0: so it is a real thing, hot Yeah, uh, now I'm peaked. I'm back on that story. I'm fixated. <laughs> I'm a simple man. I can't do more than one thing.
1: Hey, Joseph, one of the things I noticed that uh, this year, you guys were doing seminars at some of the conventions, doing some education stuff as well, tasting things like that. What are, what are some of the education tools you guys are using? And what are you, what are you kind of helping the craft market, especially what do you think they need to learn?
2: Oh, that's a, uh, that's a pretty broad topic. So it's one of those that you know, I think everybody can, can be due for some education. Um, And I think that's the one thing that I love most about, you know, the craft industry and, you know, and beverage distillation as a whole is I don't think there's a day that goes by that you don't learn at least something Um, You know, unless you're oblivious or you're just that, you know, you're just that buried with, uh, you know, day to day operations, you're always going to pick up something, you know, this little nugget here, this little tip there. Um, So there's always something, even if it's a topic, you know, well, such as, you know, distillation techniques or, uh, you know, mashing of malted barley, you know, etc. There's always something you can learn. So one of the things that we've, you know, we've done for, you know, almost 40 years, you know, at the alcohol school when it started its lineage with the old, uh, you know, the all tech uh, alcohol division over there in Lexington is we've maintained the alcohol school. We've maintained the alcohol textbook now and it's, you know, it's sixth rendition. Um, So we're always we're putting on schools, you know, pretty much all over the world now. We still have our one every year in Montreal. We're putting on a beverage-only school in the Dominican Republic in, I think it's this October, I believe, mid to late October of this year. Um, And don't believe the rumors. You're not going to die if you go to the Dominican Republic. (laughs) Yeah, damn it. I was going to make that joke. Uh, No,
1: you will, Zeno. That's different.
2: (laughs) But it's one that there's always a thirst for knowledge, you know, and as long as you put it off, you know, we've always had the, you know, kind of the mindset that you you separate anything sales and marketing from education. And when you're educating somebody, you remove all product names, whatever. If you're going to talk about yeast, you talk about yeast. You don't talk about a specific yeast strain or, you know, a specific product type where you turn it into a marketing thing. And that just, that just turns people off. but anything and everything, you know, we found, you know, the craft distilling industry I think is, and always will be just a giant sponge. You know, everybody is just thirsty for knowledge and the more that's available, the better. Um, the bad thing is, is there are some shysters out there and some, some rather poor, either poor educators or some people who are spreading some misnomers that are a bit frustrating to deal with time and time again. But, uh, thankfully blogs help with that so people can remain anonymous when they're debunking these things and why so <laughs>
1: <laughs> Joseph totally just outed himself as that guy who is going on all the blogs and forums telling everyone shut up he's an idiot don't listen to him stop listening to Steve Zeno his posts are asinine
0: <laughs> what could you say is some of the best practices for yeast management for distilleries are and you could keep it simple as you know because I mean let's Let's assume most people are. Sure. So the, the best
2: practice, you know, as a yeast, you know, supplier, manufacturer, you know, one of the things that, you know, we, we push, but of course it's like anything it, it, at the end of the day, it's your distillery, you know, you'll run it how you like and how you see fit. Cause damn it, you paid for it. Uh, but, you know, yeast rehydration, you know, is a big one, uh, you know, anything you can do to get that yeast to have a leg up, um, you know, in fermentation to get it started just a little bit quicker. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not as complex as some people make it sound. I mean, really, you're talking, you know, fifteen to fifteen minutes in, you know, kind of that ninety-five to hundred degree water um, before you pitch it in is totally fine. Um,
3: now, do you want to go direct from? from rehydration water to your full batch? Or do you sure,
2: sort yeah, because there's not-
3: Dilute your hydration water a bit for another 15 uh,
2: minutes. No, you don't really need to because it's the temperature drop isn't going to be that great. I mean, even if you were, let's say, if you had 100 degrees and you were still at 100 degrees and let's say you were gonna set fermentation at, uh, let's say 70, you know, you wanted something that ran you know, five days, You know, it was gonna ramp up on you. No, there's no need to. It's not that big enough of a drop. Um if you were doing Well,
3: more than temperature drop, I was more worried about like osmotic pressure.
2: Uh no, not really because of going from a zero percent
3: sugar solution to a nineteen or whatever it is. Yeah, as
2: long as you're yeah, as long as you're not above that nineteen twenty bricks, sure. Um, specific, you know, particularly if you're thinking like of of rum fermentations, um you know, if somebody's pushing like a twenty two bricks or something like that, yeah, for sure that can be a bit stressful, but then you may be better off actually splitting the feed of that you know of that feedstock up a little bit, where maybe you do a a secondary addition of of those sugars. Um, otherwise mashing mashing's a little bit different because, y- you know, particularly if you're using enzymes you can control the release of that sugar so even if you run a quote-unquote high gravity fermentation with grain um, and you're using commercial enzymes as long as you don't you're not hammering those enzymes at the beginning um, starch has a much lower impact on or not starch but dextrin chains so the longer chains of glucose molecules stuck together as long as they're stuck together in those long strands of basically spaghetti they're not bothersome to the yeast as soon as they get broken down into single sugars that's where the osmotic stress comes in but otherwise it, it really it shouldn't be an issue um
0: well and i think with distilleries too you have a lot of limit dextrinase yep. action in the fermenter right so some of those longer chain ones are right, right because
2: there's no point. right exactly
0: so yeah. so there that yeah so i guess but I think by what you're saying too, by the time that that would happen, that limit destroades has broken down those into you know three chain, two chain, one chain to glucose. by that time, you are exactly to probably enough yeah, cause you
2: don't want to have it broken down into simple well, no. ones too early anyway because then it just makes it a feast for you know bacteria or wild yeast or whatever to get in there too right.
0: Right. hence why raw sugar cane juices so
2: yeah it's, it's a fun one to ferment and it, it's an amazing substrate to yeah. use and be around if you have a chance go to uh go to baton rouge and check out uh three roll now i get it used to be keen land um but three roll you know in october yep. to about the first of the year when they run their cane juice it, it's pretty cool to see that stuff goes quick well that's what you'll
0: see down here if you come visit me too that, that
2: I plan to do that the end of uh, end of July, so I'll be. I'll that be is a terrible later. time to visit <laughs> Louisiana. <laughs> uh yeah, you know what? I, I did it last year, and I don't mind. So, but I've got a colleague coming, so that's her fault. <laughs> no, seriously though, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll
0: make sure we take time because I mean, the facility I'm talking about is in Thibodaux, Louisiana. Yeah. So
2: it's like oh, an oh, that's fired back up. Who who actually owns that?
0: You're talking to the guy.
2: Oh, really? I, okay, I wasn't aware. I, yeah, I used yeah. to deal with, uh, you know, as Don or Peltier, I used to deal with, you know, those folks. So I wasn't aware. That's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, so we, we assumed all operations there. So I'm just getting up and running. and and But I'm, unlike, the, I'm only making rum there. Because if you've been to that facility, yep. you can spin in a circle and the only thing you're going to see is sugarcane.
2: Yep. So. Well, sugarcane and neighbors are kind of jokes, but I'll I'll, 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 not say that. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's, let's record all that. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I was told. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so I, I want to go back to that, you know, best practices too. Do you recommend any yeast nutrient or an oxygenation stone or anything uh, like that?
2: Not so much oxygenation. Cause when you, when we, When a yeast producer, if they're worth their salt, when they are producing, you know, yeast to be dried, um, they are producing it in a matter where there is a ton of sterols and the the unsaturated fatty acids, which is what you're trying to um, kind of mimic um, by adding that oxygen in there. So. I would say no on the oxygenation, um, but you do get enough oxygen in there by, cause odds are you're filling your fermenter from the top. So you're, you're splash filling it. So you're bringing in oxygen at that point anyway. Uh, so you're bringing in enough for the yeast at that point to kind of do what they do. And, you know, at that point, uh, you know, too much, obviously and you you run the risk of either other yeasts or worse yet, you know, uh, et cetera, getting well, So in if there you weren't kind of, filling uh, it
3: from the top, uh, mucking things up, if you were pumping in from the bottom, so no splashing, is it going to hurt to add a little bit?
2: Uh, not necessarily going to hurt it, you know, as long as it's, it's sterile, uh, you know, sterile air, it's dry air. You've got a HEPA filter on it. Uh, you take the appropriate steps. Um, not necessarily, but it's, you're only going to need it for the first very, very short amount of time. Cause you don't want to extend, you don't want to extend that aerobic sure. step, um, you know, any longer, you know, than you have right. to, cause then you're not making alcohol at that point. You
0: just, you just want in the lag phase when they're building that cell wall, right? It's, exactly. Like yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Right. What yeah. about nutrient, though, because some of the minerals that, you know, that may be not innate in the substrate that you're using?
2: Right? Correct. So, you know, you can do so you can do nutrients. You can kind of approach it a couple different ways. So You can do nutrients as you're rehydrating the yeast, uh, which can be helpful. So if you're going into a very stressful environment, a very hot environment or something that's just uh, you know, let's say you're doing something with fruit and there just have to be a lot of plant based things in there um, that could possibly be inhibitory towards the yeast. Uh, you know, growing the yeast up with a proper yeast nutrient can be helpful as well. You know, kind of bringing in, you know, extra zinc, uh, magnesium, you know, some different things in there to really get that yeast robust. Because um, what you're looking to do is you don't necessarily see the benefit of a yeast nutrition um, at the start of fermentation. Really where you see the benefit of it is at the end. Um, you know, kind of that last, you know, the last 24 hours or so, you know, the finish of it, you know, how consistent it is, how strong it is, et cetera. Um, but definitely during fermentation, it's typically the biggest lacking thing is, is nitrogen you know, for just about everybody, which is interesting because the most common question I had uh, at the the ADI conference in Denver, Um, I didn't plan it this way, but I brought up sulfur, but the amount of sulfur based questions and fermentation I had that week, uh, I had more questions that week than I had over, you know, the the previous, you know, 14 years, 15 years, you know, I've been in the industry or, you know, distilling Um, and people were getting these big sulfur notes within the first 24 hours of fermentation, but then they went away. And I said, okay, well, what's the problem? I said, well, it just my fermenters just stink like hell for the first 24 hours, so I'm really careful that I don't, you know, that it matches up well with tours, et cetera, uh, so people aren't smelling, you know, horrific rotten egg smell, et cetera. Hmm. And it just came down to they were just overdosing nitrogen, you know, too much diammonium phosphate, et cetera, up front. Mm-hmm. You know, they just needed to space it out a little bit. They were just overdriving the yeast and making them go nuts. So...
0: Very interesting.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's lots of different, you know, nutrients, you know, lots of different pathways you can choose. You know, the good way is just to uh, make sure you know what's in your substrate and make sure that it's within the, uh, you know, kind of the minimum requirement of the yeast at, you know, at best, you know, make sure you have enough zinc and some of these other things in there to make sure that fermentation is clean um, and finishes effectively.
0: Yeah. And that you're mashing or blending or, Yep. Pressing or whatever it is, you're doing that with care. Yep, exactly All right.
1: right. Yep, up. do it.
0: Awesome. Hey, should I grunt us out, guys? Final thoughts. Mm, <fun> oh,
1: <laughs> uh, it never gets old for me, it's basically just for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was that was a good one. That was like <laughs> traditional. <laughs> where Where do you think yeast is going to go with the craft distilling industry now? What's next? Mm. Is it the genetic? genetically modified? Is it people are going to move to, you know, their own proprietary strain? Where do you think they go next?
2: Well, you know, as a again, as a yeast producer, you know, if we can find a way to to make smaller, smaller batch sizes effectively um, and economically, yeah, you know, to boot, you know, and by economically I mean within reason, you know, for a craft distiller, for sure, I think that route is one. Um, But I think the as this biotech, this GMO, genetically enhanced, however you, know, you want to call it and spin it, however this moves forward, I think that will be the, the biggest avenue because I think the sky is almost the limit there. Um, but then we have to throw in kind of a wild card in on this thing that uh, is kind of fun and interesting is what about the bacteria side? Uh, you know, as as many yeast strains as are out there, there's probably at least a tenfold in bacteria um, that can do a lot of fun and interesting things in fermentation as well. So there's the sky is the limit. I mean, it's, it's whatever your imagination can can put out there. Odds are somebody will be able to make it at some point in the near future. Cool. Except for that infrared one. I think
1: that's kind of <laughs> <laughs> Good final thought. Uh, Joseph, thank you for joining us and nerding out over awesome science, beverage, alcohol news and information.
2: Sure. Not a problem. Uh, Loved it.
1: All right, guys.
0: Spe- speaking of information, if you want to get information out about your.
3: And do it well.
0: Or distillery or.
1: <laughs> and do it well. It's
0: not this podcast. Um, <laughs> If you haven't gathered that, that's really great to try and get uh, sponsors <laughs> just by saying that it's not a great way to get out information using this podcast. But if you did want someone good, uh,
1: High Proof Creative. High Proof Creative knows exactly this. what they're doing with the internet, unlike everyone else on this podcast, except for Joseph. So thank you, High Proof Creative, for taking care of all of our social media internet needs and uh, returning our calls, which is still surprising every single day. <laughs>
0: yeah. And I really like our last segment. Our final <laughs> thought segment is really degrading. It was just one, one thing. One thing now.
1: well see the problem is joseph had a really good educational final thought and then the rest of us are just going to make a poop joke or something so it's probably best just to move on (laughs) he
0: nailed it i was like oh man this is too high of a note to end on Uh, please don't say anything else and everyone so
1: thank you to high proof creative thank you joseph and we love you dummies